Guys, let's, um, let's go before the Lord one more time and just have a moment of prayer. Father, um, Father, we come off the heels and are in the midst of just difficulty. We're in the midst of some kind of pandemic that is claiming the lives of individuals, of people whom we know. I mean, just today, Lord, we prayed for an individual who is on life support because of the complications from COVID. And so, Father, we don't pretend to take lightly the viruses and diseases of this world, but we do know that we serve a sovereign God who is more powerful than all of these things. And so, Lord, I, I petition that you would convict and compel our hearts to pray for those who are sick, to pray for the ending of such a virus, remembering that you are the divine physician who can heal all things. Nothing is beyond your reach, O oh God. Even now, Lord, I ask that you would quiet the streets because you can do that. I ask that you would give ourselves, that you would help us to give ourselves and our attention to the word of God. And that it would do work in our souls. And so, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you encourage us? Would you, would you show yourself in a way that we weren't even ready for? Would you fix all of our mistakes by showing up and doing what you want to do? We ask you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As Man, it feels so good to see y'all's face. Ooh. My name is Kanan Parker. As y'all know, I'm one of the pastors at Pillar Church. Um, this, uh, this, I was going to say this morning, this evening, we're going to continue our uh, series in the book of Jude. So go ahead and turn there in your copy of God's Word. I hope you brought it because we ain't here to picnic. We're here to hear the Word of God. So go ahead and open up your word to the book of Jude as we continue our series in that book. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of an old truth, a truth that you already know, but an old truth that oftentimes we forget the implications of. And this is that truth. The truth is that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jude's call to contend for the faith is a call to introspection. See, before we start looking at individuals around us as to how the word should be applied to them, I think what we ought to be doing is firstly seeing how the word of God is applied to me or to you. You know, when this sermon was written, when this sermon was prayed for, when this sermon is being preached, it was preached with you in mind by God. God didn't have your neighbor in mind when this sermon was being composed, when this series was being put together. He had you in mind for this series. He had you in mind. And so your, your posture when you come before the preaching of God's word isn't whether or not you enjoyed the preaching of the word. Because your enjoyment of the preaching of the word is irrelevant to its truth. Your duty, your job is to see how have you fared under the preaching of the word of God. How has the word of God changed your soul? What has it done to you, for you? And how has it shifted your attention from yourself to our Lord? 
And so even now, even on this evening, when we have distraction after distraction, as we have mosquitoes and swings squeaking, as we have cars that are going to come up and through, ask God to give you a supernatural ability to have ears to hear. And don't ask and doubt. Ask and know that he can. As we prayed this morning, we prayed about, I got to stop. I'm going to say none of this in the sermon. As we prayed this morning, we were praying about how we often forget which God it is we serve, how powerful he is, how broad his jurisdiction actually goes. And so what we take, you see the testing? Y'all feel that? Ooh, it's all good. We still here though. God is sovereign over all things. The bugs, the winds and the waves, the sounds in the street corners. He's sovereign over all things. And so when you ask God for attention, trust. And then try to pay attention, but trust. A few weeks ago, we started uh, uh, the series. Oh, did we start? I don't know if we started. The second sermon in the series was called The Anatomy of a Wolf. We talked about the tactics of a wolf. We talked about the character of a wolf. We talked about the teachings of a wolf. And we defined a wolf as somebody who, de who desires to harm the sheep for personal gain. Jude told us that what wolves tend to do is they tend to sneak into the flock unnoticed, right? They creep in from outside. They look like sheep. They smell like sheep. They act like sheep. However, a wolf can only sustain off of the food of a sheep for so long. You see, their stomach will growl because grass is not their natural diet. And so eventually, a wolf is going to bite a sheep. We also saw that the character of a wolf was ungodly, but it's not ungodly in the sense of outwardly where you could see the individual and you can tell that they're ungodly. It's that their ungodliness is cloaked in humility. Their ungodliness is cloaked in intellectual capabilities. Their ungodliness is cloaked in good works. It's really hard to tell a wolf when he's cloaked in humility. Jude also told us that a wolf is going to abuse God's grace. He's going to justify his sin by telling us that we don't need to worry about it because God has grace for you. And so have no care about your sin. Basically turning God's grace into a license for immorality. Am I walking too much, bro? I'm going to keep walking. I can't stop. All right. I'm just all right. You see, this is about three hour sermon. First time back, bro. Six, seven months. Lastly, Jude told us that these false brothers will experience God's judgment. Guys, I want to tell you this. It's not safe nor right to turn your back on the living God. And so as you open your Bibles to Jude chapter 5, we're going to see uh, Jude verse 5. We're going to see three Old Testament examples. Now, if you're anything like me, then you've opened your Old Testament and y'all can talk to the kid. Don't feel like you can't say something. Say something. So when you open up your Old Testament, if you're like me, you oftentimes have the thought, how does this relate to me? Right. What does Genesis have to do with me? What does I, the book of Isaiah have to do with me? What's a Habakkuk? What's a Nahum? Y'all ever had that question? What's a Zephaniah? Right. And then you open it and you read it and what you you confuse. Right. You lost. It. Yeah. Yes. Just, just admit it. It's me. The problem lies in the question, not what does this have to do with me? You see, if we approach the text like what does this have to do with me? We're going to miss the point of the text. 
The question shouldn't be, what does this have to do with me? The, the, the question we have to ask is, how does this point us to the Savior, Jesus Christ? Because all of the scriptures are meant to point us in a particular direction, and the direction is toward the Son of God. So before we ask, what does it have to do with me? We ask, well, how does this shed light on Jesus? And then after we see how it shed lights on Jesus, we are faced with the question that Jesus asked Peter, who do, who do you say that I am? And your answer to that question has implications for all of life. You feel me? Y'all with me still? The Bible tells us that the Old Testament was recorded for our instruction. I don't know if you knew that, but look in your cross-reference sheet in your in your your booklet, in your um your bulletin, your cross-reference sheet. Romans, there's a lot of cross-references. Y'all see this, right? Romans 15, verse 4. It says, For whatever was written in the past was written for what? Our instruction. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. It says, These things happened as examples, and they were written for what? Our instruction. Jude is about to model how we apply the Old Testament, not only to his day, but to ours. So Jude, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who believe. Now I know that a lot of y'all already know a little bit about the story of Exodus. We just came off of a series preaching through a large portion of the book of Exodus. And so I do like Jude does. I say, I know you already know these things, but there's a few things I think that we may have missed in that narrative that Jude desires to point out for us. That's why he says in verse five, I want to remind you. He wants to, to call to the people's attention something that they think they know. You ever think you know something until you read it slowly? And then you're like, oh, that's what that meant. Well, this is what Jude is doing to his people. Slow down and listen to what Jude just said. He said something that ought to make your head tilt. Look at verse five again. It says, now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. But wait a minute. Did y'all just see what I just saw? Who's the individual that saved the people out of Egypt? Now, I know depending on your translation, you'll have the words the Lord, but the earliest manuscripts have Jesus there, which is the person of Christ. Jesus wouldn't be born for 1,500 more years. How is it that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt if Jesus was not born? It's a pickle. That's a predicament for us to, to look into, right? Jude is doing something. He's showing us that the work of Jesus goes beyond the New Testament. The work of Jesus goes beyond the New Testament. Jesus, before he took on human flesh, this is in your cross-reference sheet, Jesus, before he took on human flesh, existed as God and with God. That's what we find in the very beginnings of John chapter 1. And we get to behold. We get to behold through the pages of the Old Testament the wonderful works of deliverance even before the cross. Somebody say Jesus is a deliverer. Y'all don't believe that, though. Somebody say Jesus is a deliverer. Even in the Old Testament, Jesus was a deliverer. He had not died upon the cross. He had not taken upon himself human flesh, but he was delivering from the beginnings of the book of Exodus during the times of Moses, 1,500 years before Jesus walked 
on this planet as a man. Jesus was present and active during the days of Moses. What is Jude showing us? He's teaching us how to read the Old Testament. We read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We read the Old Testament through the lens of the Old Testament. You ever heard of something called a double entendre? It means that something has a dual meaning unto it. Yes, this meant something to the people during Moses' time. But what Jude is doing is he's showing us the ultimate fulfillment of the realities of what happened during the Exodus. And that's that the person of Christ. Am I yelling too much, bro? Go ahead. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do I need it? I don't even need it, huh? I was flowing and then you came up here. Judas teaching us how we read our Old Testaments. We read it in light of the new. You know, Jude, remember who he is. Who's Jude? Jude is the half brother of Jesus. You think he knows when Jesus was born? However, he's the one that said that it was Jesus who saved the people out of Egypt and then later destroyed. You know, Jesus isn't the only one who said something like this. The Apostle Paul says something very similar. Look again in your cross-reference sheet at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. It says, now I want you to be, and I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, remember that line, those two words, our ancestors, right? He says that our ancestors were all under the cloud and, and all passed through the sea. What's he talking about? The cloud that led the people of Israel during, during the day and the pillar of fire that led them at night. He's, he's bringing everybody's attention back to the time of the Exodus. That's what Paul's doing. He says he led our ancestors under the cloud. And what did they do? They passed through the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. But they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was whom? Christ. When, whatever is he talking about? The ever in which the ancestors lived, right? Y'all still following me? Verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since he struck them down in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Here we go again. So that we will not desire evil things as they did. Verse seven. Paul's going to tell us what not to do as they did. He says, do not become idolaters as some of them were. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Let us not test who? Christ as some of them did. Who's them? The ancestors. And were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Again, verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, before we get bogged down in the weeds of talking about Jesus existing in the Old Testament, let's come back up for some air. Let's look at verse five again and see if we can come up, see if we can see the, the big picture of verse five because we don't want to miss the force for the trees. Verse five says, now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things, that once for, uh, once for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who didn't believe. God saved people out of Egypt and then destroyed those who didn't believe. So now let's ask some questions to the text. Can we do that? Let's ask some questions. Who did God save out of Egypt? The ancestors, right? The people of Israel. Where was God leading them to? The promised land. Did they all make it to the promised land according to that verse? No, they were what? A whole generation was destroyed. Why? Because they didn't believe. What's the implications of this verse for us? 
Your affiliations and your associations may get you out of Egypt, but they don't have the power to get you to the promised land. God saves by faith. Your church affiliation doesn't have the power to get you to the promised land. Your ethnic identity doesn't have the power to get you to the promised land. It may get you out of Egypt, but it ain't getting you to the promised land. Your socioeconomic status may have the power to get you out of some type of bondage, but it does not have the power to deliver yourself to the promised land. Y'all see the implication? They didn't make it based off one reality, and that reality is that they did not believe. Faith is the only means by which we can enter the promised land. There is no other means. There's no other way. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. It doesn't matter how much law you keep. You can keep the law as the best of your ability. The reality is you are born in inequity and in sin your mother conceived you. Therefore, you are disqualified from the presence of God and you need somebody to mediate on your behalf. Salvation by affiliation and anything other than Jesus is a defamation of his reparation by imputation, thus leading, one's, leading to one's eternal condemnation. Y'all heard that? I'm going to say it again. Yo. Salvation by affiliation and anything other than Jesus is a defamation of his reparation by imputation, thus leading to one's eternal condemnation. It means if you add anything to the cross, you're condemned. It means salvation is by grace through faith alone. In one person, Jesus. What did the false brothers in Jude chapter 4 do? They denied Jesus. That's what those false brothers did. Look at Jude 4. That's what it says. If you can see it in your... If you have a tech Bible, use that, right? Jude 4, it says that they denied Jesus. What ha what's going to happen to those false brothers in Jude 4? It says that they're going to be met with judgment. What did the people of Israel do upon their escape from Egypt, according to Jude 5? They denied Jesus. What happened to them? They were destroyed. So what does that mean for us if we deny Jesus? See, the whole Old Testament is pointing us to one person, pointing us to one reality is that Jesus is a deliverer and there is salvation and only in his name. John 3.36 says, the one who believes, capital B, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Y'all, if you have yet to do this, I, I, I plead with you to repent, which means to turn away, and believe, which means to trust in the person of work of Jesus Christ. You will not be right with God the Father without the, uh, without the mediation of the Son. You need him. You need him. Not a suggestion. Pillar Church, turn and trust in the person of Jesus. Place your faith in what is true. Speaking of things that are true, when I was in, I think I was in middle school, I used to watch, watch this TV series called Hercules. You already watch Hercules, the legendary journeys of Hercules? Lee, you used to watch Hercules, bro. Yes, sir. Y'all remember in the beginning, the intro, you see Kevin saw a bowl with that little stick and he, what do you do? He hit that giant in the head and the giant go flipping back. I used to imitate that all day. I, I got that swing down. Kevin saw a bowl, smashing the giant. 
Now, giants aren't real. Right? Are they? See, in America, we have an unhealthy relationship with our own version of truth. See, in America, we have an unhealthy relationship with the natural to the point where we reject anything supernatural. You see, what the devil likes to do is he likes to pull the wool over our eyes by over-fictionalizing and over-fantasizing truth in order to cause us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You see, Jude's next example of judgment is going to test whether or not we truly believe in the supernatural. Look at verse 6 of Jude. He says, And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on that great day. Now, right off the bat, we see a whole lot of weeds that we're going to dive into and then pull back out again on. What is Jude talking about when he said angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling? Now, there's some who believe, and and, and it could be true, that these are the angels who rebelled against God in heaven and they didn't keep their proper position. Rather, they wanted to be God and now they were cast away from God into chains in eternal darkness. And depending on your interpretation of chains in eternal darkness, that could be a valid position. Another valid position is that Jude is speaking of the realities we find in Genesis chapter 6, the one that we conveniently read over because we're American and we don't like anything that might sound too spooky or supernatural. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it says this. Listen to the words of what God said through the prophet Moses. He said, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any that they chose as wives for themselves. Verse four, it says the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. Y'all know what the Nephilim were? They were considered to be giants. The Nephilim, verse four, were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. And when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind, they bore children to them. And they were, power, they were called the powerful men of old, the, men, the famous men, or in the way I learned, the men of renown. Now, did this verse make your head tilt just like verse 5 might have did to you? Because it says something a little funny, doesn't it? And y'all could admit it if it's funny. What's it saying? Is it saying what it looks like it's saying? It's saying that the sons of God took the daughters of men as wives. What y'all think that's saying? You see, your American aversion to the supernatural should be spiking right now. That spider sense should be going up because that sounds weird. But I didn't say it, so you ain't got a beef with me. The text said it. And if we understand the sons of God and we interpret it throughout the whole lens of the Old Testament, then we see that the sons of God are oftentimes and usually referring to the angelic divine beings. And anytime it says sons or daughters of men, we know we're speaking of homo sapiens, you and me. Somebody say supernatural. Say it ain't so. But it looks like Moses, the author of Genesis, is telling us that angelic beings married earthly females and they bore some children. 
That's what Moses is saying, and that seems to be what Jude is saying in Jude verse 6. That also seems to be what the Apostle Peter is alluding to in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Look it up if you want to. Now, before we get too lost in those weeds, let's come back up for some air. But let me say this before we do. It's not clear how these angels or these divine beings did such a thing. So I, I can't tell you how that went down. I wasn't there. Text doesn't tell us how. Well, I mean, you know how it went down, but I don't know how it went down. I don't, know what, I don't know what happened, but this is what we know. This is in your cross-reference sheet. The testimony of the scriptures indicate that angels can, can and do assume the look and role of humans from time to time for any given purpose. We find that in Hebrews, Genesis, Judges, Luke, and more. I gave you four, two Old Testament, two New. Now let's take a step back and look at the big picture of verse 6. It says, and the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on that great day. These angels didn't play their position, just like the wolves of, of Jude verse 4 didn't do. It says that they abandoned their proper dwelling, same thing they did. It says that they came in by stealth and they engaged in ungodly affairs with the, with the, the, the daughters of man. Again, something that these wolves did. And it says that they're being kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the day of judgment. Basically, they rebelled against their God-given responsibility and abandoned their post. So what's the implication for us as it pertains to this verse? The implication is that you may think that you are safe in your state of rebellion, but I'm here to tell you that you are not safe in your state of rebellion. Now, what's crossing your mind is that you're not in a state of rebellion. You may be like, I'm not in a state of, are you in a state of rebellion? I'm not in a state of rebellion. That's, that's what crosses my mind when somebody tells me that I'm in rebellion against God. But let me ask you this. Are you fully surrendered unto the Lord? And the key word is fully, because if you're not fully surrendered to the Lord, then you are in a state of rebellion. If you are hiding sin in your closet, you are in a state of rebellion. If you are actively, currently, willingly engaged in sinful activity, you are in a state of rebellion. I say it slow so you can think about the rebellion in your own heart. The peace of yourself that you want to keep to yourself. You don't want God to have it. You don't want God to change it. You don't want God to expose it. You want to save face. You want to look Christian. You don't want to be talked about, slandered. So you tuck that sin in the closet. So you close that door so no one can see what you're doing behind it. If you have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, you are in a state of rebellion. Repent and believe is a biblical command, not a divine suggestion. In the same way that racism isn't always hoods and nooses, rebellion is not always murder plots and wars. Jude, I mean, James chapter four, verse four says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that mere friendship with the world is hostility toward God? 
So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes what? An enemy of God. Some of us are so busy trying to be like the world that we forgot to be light to the world. We've allowed our culture to suck us in so deep that we more so identify with it than we do with the Savior. If you call yourself a Christian, you are different. You are a new creation. And I'm giving you permission by the word of God to be different, to be a new creation. Your allegiance is to Christ before anything else and anyone else. If not, you are in a state of rebellion. We've forgotten what holiness is. We need to be striving for holiness. The reality is that in our, today in our culture, holiness has become corny. Holiness is people get laughed at for trying to be holy nowadays in 21st century United States. It's not cool to be holy. It's not cool to be virtuous. But God doesn't take our sin lightly and neither should we. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the next example of judgment from Jude, verse 7. Look what it says. It says, likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed what? Sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What's Jude doing? Here Jude is highlighting how the Lord feels about ungodly sexual sin. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he that he highlights sexual sin because it says that those wolves in Jude verse four were using the grace of God as an excuse to, to do sensual activities. Jude is referring to the point in history that we will read in the Genesis chapter 19. The issue that Jude is highlighting in its context is any unnatural or improper sensual encounters and that these all are worthy of judgment. I'm going to try to say that carefully for the sake of children here. In Jude 4, he tells us that these false brothers use a pseudo-biblical justification. Remember that from a few weeks ago? They're using a pseudo-biblical justification called cheap grace to soothe their seared consciences. They convince themselves that God's love, apart from repentance and faith, would never condemn them for their unnatural sensual behaviors. But the text doesn't allow us to say that. Any form of sensual relation outside of the biblical bounds of marriage is sin. Have you found yourself there? Are you there? Are you actively participating in such activities? In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, there were activities where men were desiring men. But that's not only where Jude is going, because in the example where Jude is, go is using, it's probably likely that these men were taking advantage of widows and women who were seen as needy. See, the, the sin, the sensual sin in Sodom and Gomorrah was deep. It was so deep that when, they, when, when the men surrounded the house of Lot and they said, bring those men out so we can have our way with them, the angels that were in the shape of men, there's another example, he, they blinded them and they continued to grope the house trying to find the doorknob to get in and have their way. That's how deep and how sick the sin was in Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, I say, before you call Sodom and Gomorrah sick and twisted, I say, look at yourself. Is there sick, twisted thoughts in your heart and mind? 
that you have yet to reveal in the way that these bold men in Sodom and Gomorrah did? What kind of sick, twisted thoughts are in your heart or in your mind? You know, even in our very own city here today, we have sick and twisted situations happening every day. Nelson, don't leave me, buddy. Sorry, he's good. You know, in our very own neighborhoods, there are children being taken advantage of and overpowered both mentally and physically by predators. Did y'all know that? In our neighborhood here. We have women who are walking home and can't help but being groped by individuals. We have wives who are being verbally and, and mentally abused by their husbands. We have husbands who are being verbally and mentally abused by their wives here in our neighborhood right here. We have people who are desperately sick and looking for work because of what has happened to them through COVID. And they're having to, they're having to do sensual favors in order to get a job. Y'all know that it's happening here in this city. You see, when God recorded the Old Testament, it was for our instruction. Somebody say our instruction. All right, y'all still here. The false brothers in Jude were referring. I'm sorry, the, the false brothers in Jude. I'm sorry, the false brothers Jude is referring to would tell us that it's okay. See, these, these, these encounters, it's okay. God is love. The sin is paid for. You shouldn't feel it in any way, shape, or form. Don't be convicted about your sin. God is gracious. You see, a drop of poison in a cup of water becomes a cup of poison, right? A little bit of lie in a paragraph of truth can do major damage to your worldview and understanding of what reality is. It is true that God is indeed love. It is true that Jesus did indeed pay for our sin on the cross. It is true that God is gracious. But the moment we view the cross as a get out of jail free card, we have violated it. We are no longer worthy of it. And we have exposed the fidelity of our faith. We didn't want God. We want his stuff. And wanting God's stuff is not what the gospel entails. What God does is in the gospel, he comes close to you. In the gospel, you get a salvation from sin, that's a byproduct. No, you get Jesus. You get holy proximity to God in the gospel. That's the good news, that you were once far from him and he brought you near to him. The question you've heard, the question I've asked, the question that we've been heard, we've heard asked from other preachers and pastors is would you be satisfied with heaven if everything you ever wanted was there, but God wasn't there? What do you want? Do you want the Savior? Do you want to bask with him in his presence? Or do you want his stuff and to go on with your day? Do you want his grace so you can continue to live a life of licentiousness? No, we want holy proximity to God. We want to be close to God. We want to hate sin as he hates sin. We want to grieve over sin as he grieves over sin. We want to combat the oppression of sin because Jesus gave us freedom from sin. That's found in Romans chapter 6. You can now say no to it, believer. You can flee from it, believer. And we shall not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Instead, we'll press towards freedom through repentance and faith. God will judge the man or woman who takes the gospel of grace for granted. Don't look at anybody else, but think about yourself. Have you and are you taking the gospel of grace for granted? You see, the people of Israel were destroyed because of their unbelief. 
The angels were put into eternal chains in deep darkness because of their rebellion towards God. And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their unrepentant sensual sins. But this is what the Holy Spirit says in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. It's in your cross-reference sheet. I'm going to read the word of God as I close. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing when in the wilderness. Where your ancestors tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger, God says, with that generation. And they were always saying they will always go astray in their hearts. And they have not known my ways. Verse 11. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there, uh, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. But we have become participants in Christ. Hold firmly until the end the reality that you had at the start. As it is said, today if you heard his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Was it not all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did we swear? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not those who were destroyed? So we, I mean, um, so we see that they were unable to enter God's rest. Why? Because of unbelief. Now, the whole point of the text is to bring you to faith, to belief in Jesus. And my prayer is that somehow, some way, God's word would lead you all the way home to the Savior. Father, thank you so much for Jude, verses 5, 6, and 7. There's so much more left there, Lord, but the, the dawning of the, the setting of the sun is, has led us to a point where we shall close. I pray. I pray. I pray that your word would penetrate I pray that your word would, would do violence to our souls. I pray that your word would make us very, very uncomfortable and make us very, very dependent upon you. For there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And so, Lord, we thank you. And we are careful to give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.